You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Another edition of Bite Into It, discussing computers and new technology. Tonight, you're joined by Mike Bantic. Oh, good evening, everybody. Dan Salmon. Good evening. And me, Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, later tonight, we are going to be hearing about Seamless's first recruitment hackathon. So that's pretty exciting. But um, before we get to that, we are going to cover a little bit of news. What's been going on, guys? Uh, well, I, the one that caught my eye uh, tonight, uh, Vanessa, uh, was the final. Uh, they finally switched on the Carnegie Wave Energy wave generation power station in WA, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, it um, is named Seto. I guess that's how you say it. You guys up on your Greek goddesses? Not particularly. It's been a long time since I've studied anything that isn't really pre-1998. But... Um... <laughs> Then you're probably not up on your Greek not goddesses. Not up on my no. Greek goddesses. But no. I am, however, uh, very excited about the uh, this um, new... Uh, I because mean, we've been talking about wave generation for a very long time. And it feel, uh, is this the first... Uh, this is the first array of wave power generators to be hooked up to the actual uh, electricity grid in Australia worldwide. Um, according to uh, one of their uh, uh, announcements, um, in particular, this one made me laugh, our wave resources in Western Australia are the best in the world, and theoretically the resources that hit our coastline every day could power the state ten times over. Um, so if you're not familiar, basically it's it's a number of uh, immersed, what do you call them, um, well, I guess generation uh, modules that move up and down with the tide, uh, and uh, as we, you know, uh, on they a daily basis, they kind of look a little bit like mushrooms. But if the mushroom cap could move up and down or something, yeah, they like that. Yeah, I like that. I, I like to think of them as possibly um, evil, uh, evil villains uh, <laughs> under sea lairs because that's what they look Space like to me. Space needles gone wild. Um, they're also using it to essentially in in a. Um, emissions-free way, you uh, do a desalination plant over there in WA as well. So they're getting water, they're getting electricity, and essentially all for nothing uh, via the um, this uh, finally after a decade of testing and and, and I guess prototyping uh, from this new wave-generating uh, electricity plant. Looks good. And it's all underwater, so no need to worry about the orange breasted parrots that might be affected by the wave thrumming of the no, wind just, generators. No, just the orange-bellied, you know, yeah. gropers or something. <laughs> <laughs> We're not very good on nature, are we? Nature no. and goddesses, pretty pretty slack. We've got other shows for that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> While we're talking about um, the, the news of the week, uh, we're going from something that's really positive and you know, great for humanity, where I've, I've got a bit of news that is possibly the exact opposite of that. Um, 
I'm, and bit, uh, I need to apologise in advance because I did see Citizen 4 a couple of days ago, so my paranoia level is right up to, you know, 27 at the moment. Dan, uh, your, your paranoia level should be up to that level. I, re- I, reala- I realise this now. Good. Having, having uh, been tipped off about this particular article where... Um, now, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, but... Uh, Genalto? Genalto. Genalto. Gemalto. Sorry. G, uh, a French-Dutch company who is responsible for um, creating the, a huge majority of the world's SIM cards, so the, the small cards that you pl- uh, put in your phone that connect you to the, the outside world. Um, the, their, their company and their, their sort of... Uh, I suppose, repositories of information were hacked, unbeknownst to them, by G- uh, the UK's GCHQ and the NSA in the US. So, um, And the, this was brought to light uh, in one of the many documents that was uh, leaked by Edward Snowden. Um, th- this happened about five years ago, and uh, Jamalto didn't know about it, and I only found out about it last week when um, the, the Intercept uh, reported uh, on, on the goings-on. Mm-hmm. Basically, what GCHQ and the NSA did was uh, hack into their um, their back end and um, get contact, get access to uh, all of the encryption keys mm-hmm. of the various uh, SIM cards that were going out there, as well as um, ba- essentially spying on the staff of, of Genalto. So it's plausible that the NSA and GCHQ now do have access to every SIM card on the planet. Yeah, it basically means they can do a man-in-the-middle attack, uh, decrypt your in-flight uh, data transfers and have a bit of a peek at them and, uh, and away they go. Yeah, and that's a shame for uh, any of us Telstra customers who uh, are concerned whether our SIMs might have this vulnerability. Uh, we're, we're trying to find out if um, you know what Telstra is going to do about that and whether they're going to go out and recall things or just ignore the problem. And well, if you've got nothing to hide, Vanessa. Yes, yes, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I still works. haven't seen Citizen 4, and yet my paranoia levels couldn't be higher about that. <laughs> All right, enough of, enough of the, uh, the news, good and bad, and the goddesses and the, and the, the tech gods the Dutch and French companies naming things that we find difficulty pronouncing. Uh, We are going to hear from Rem and Chris. Welcome, Rem and Chris. Uh, You are from Seamless uh, CMS. They're the fastest-growing government content management system used for over 500 sites around the world. Um, And you're in to talk about a hackathon today. Thanks for coming in. Hello. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. So, Rem, you're a business analyst, and uh, Chris, you're a visual designer. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And uh, and, uh, it seems that you're doing a lot of recruiting at Seamless. Are they looking for, you know, your... your, potential underlings here is that is that what this is about <laughs> well seamless is growing pretty fast and we're looking at um hiring eight to ten developers um at this stage um and we often found seamless as a business um try to bring in fresh grads or fresh minds from uni and help them to um, professionally grow into different roles. Like I myself, um, I graduated from RMIT three years ago. Um, and at that time, I, off- I got this um, job offer from Seamless um, uh, just before I was finishing up my course and as a software developer role. So I joined the firm as software developer, but um, seeing my background as a business analyst, they helped me to grow into a business analyst. So now in three years' time, I became a lead business analyst and I'm managing a team of um, four people. Um, so I kind of, um, I really like the idea of, you know, uh, mentoring and coaching someone to professionally grow in their career. It's fantastic and seemed as one of the perfect places I've been so far uh, in my career. Um, so it's pretty exciting. So we just 
bizarre, you know, one of the most, um, you know, all the innovative and um, the cutting edge technologies and ideas came from our fresh grads so far. So instead of hiring seniors, we decided to go down to the recruitment level for graduates um, so we could power more. That's very reassuring to hear that this is just not about building your minion army. Um, so tell us what the event is called and um, describe to us a little bit about how you're going to how you're going to run this event. Um, the event's called Hack to the Future. Sorry, Hack to Your Future. Um, and how are we going to run it, Rem? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. Um, right. So we have um, opened up registration still uh, this Friday. Um, and uh, so any final year students or recent IT graduates can register through our online um, link, hacktoyourfuture.today. Um, and you will be receiving an initial coding challenge, just to just a fun challenge to see how you're going with your coding skills. And there'll be two different challenges. One is a front-end um, challenge. Um, if you know more about the HTML, CSS, that's what, what we're talking about. Uh, and the back-end challenge is more on a Java or a C-sharp level. So you can apply for both challenges, um, but, um, yeah, it, it depends on in which area you're most strong at. So you'll be invited to our grand challenge, which is on 14th and 15th, um, happening at Inspire9. Um, have you, have you known? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're very familiar with the oh, co-working cool. space in Spine Art, and we, we probably speak to a lot of people who've uh, worked in and out of there and run great events there. Yep, awesome. So, yeah, our event is happening at Inspire Night on 14th and 15th um, of March. Um, so, yeah, that's the two-level um, challenges we'll be having for this event. Now, Rem, uh, I'm interested, as the person in the studio with the most grey hair, are you uh, you're really focused on graduate students? Is, is there does it matter if they're say 50 years old and just graduated? Is it is it, is it really aimed at sort of that graduate uh, the young graduates coming through that you're attempting to recruit? Uh, well, our primary focus is young graduates mainly mm-hmm. because we want to keep this a very fair um, field of play. So, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be very hard for a really young or with you know don't have much experience to compete with a senior who might have just done a you know a bridging course recently from the uni. So we just want to keep it really simple. So you are competing with someone of your similar background or experience rather than trying to compete with um, seniors or professionals in the industry. Hmm. No, it's fine. It's called Hack to the Future anyway, yeah. isn't it? So it's all about <laughs> building, uh, I guess, a, a getting a career launched for, for those young graduates, which in this day and age can be difficult. Yeah. Guys, um, I've, uh, I'm a bit interested in sort of what experience you've had with uh, hackathons in the past. Have you guys been involved with any hackathons over the past years and months? I personally haven't, but I know that Rem has been involved quite uh, heavily with uh, SheHacks events, um, which she's probably the best person to talk (laughs) talk to you about that, so I'll hand over again. Um, well, even though Seam- this is the first time Seamless is running a hackathon, um, I've been involved with She Hacks personally. Um, that's through the Girl Geek Dinners. Yeah. Um, so I'm running that meetup group um, since last year, and earlier Tammy Buter was running it. Um, mm-hmm. And I was involved with that um, whole event as a co-organizer slash volunteer, um, helping out Tammy and April Staines to run this event. Yeah, we've spoken to both of them, and it's a fabulous event that they run. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I remember inviting Alex Palmer, who is the director of our company, um, for that event and he was quite excited to seeing um, all these young minds coming up with really creative and awesome idea and liberating the technology to you know create cool things um, so that's when I probably we got the spark of why don't we run a hackathon rather than the usual um, recruitment process of interviews or you know tests or anything so we just decided let's ditch all our traditional ways and so far in my research um, in Google I found like Seamless might be the first company doing a recruitment hackathon even though the other companies have internal hackathons 
they haven't really hired anyone through a hackathon so that's pretty exciting for us and since it's the first time we'll see how it goes and based on the success of this event we might be running it every year so are you running it as a individual or a team event or anything like along those lines can you explain how if i'm interested and i'm a young graduate and i'm going hey this sounds cool this sounds like a, a, a foot in the door What's expected of me at the hackathon? Sure. Um, so the initial hackathon um, challenge is an individual one, so you just compete um, from your coding experience. And the second part of the grand challenge would be a team-based, so you'll be paired up with a front-end developer, a back-end developer. Um, and if you know if your friend is also you know, just participating in this and you both happen to be clearing the first challenge, then you'll be paired up together. Otherwise, we'll just see how it goes, and we just assemble the team on the day. We don't have any strict kind of guidelines, so ideas how we're going to do it. Yeah. And technologies you expect people to use? Um, HTML, CSS skills for front-end developers and .NET skills for back-end developers um, on the day. But really, we're just looking for candidates with uh, a willingness to, to learn, really, and embrace new technology. Um, and just, uh, yeah, willingness to get involved, really, and, and, uh, and enjoy some teamwork. Will you have some mentors there to, to set people along the right path or to, for them to bounce ideas off people with a bit more experience? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so our team of um, developers, designers and business analysts will be on the floor just to you know flush out ideas and making sure they're on the right path to do the challenges. So I'm pretty sure you know being a visual designer, Chris might be able to help out how you could present your data you know, visually to impress the judging panel. So, yeah, that's pretty exciting. I'll be there. Yeah, how do they win, Chris? <laughs> How do they win? Yeah. Come and have a chat with me. Um, <laughs> get your T-shirt, hack to your future T-shirt, and then that's a good place to start, and then we'll go from there. So um, who owns the copyright of anything that gets created during this event? Well, um, considering this event got a cash price of $1,000, um, what we're thinking is all the the teams winning the cash prizes, we will on the right, like seamless reserves the right for their work, but any other team work which they want to reuse, so even launch a business idea from that, that's free for them, but for the first three teams who's winning the challenge, we own the copyrights for it. So the aim would be to try to win with your second best idea. <laughs> <laughs> so strategic. This, I can see why you maybe don't want some people with too much experience. <laughs> Very dangerous. Um, so are there opportunities for the participants to network with each other during the event? Yeah, definitely. We do have uh, breaks in between um, for networking, particularly networking opportunity. Um, also, it's a good way for them to build relationship with seamless employees as well. So, you know, we could turn into a mentoring program at the one stage if, you know, if I'm pairing up with someone and I could, you know, take them along and help them into finding a job, even though it's not with seamless. Yeah. Fair enough. So, have, ha, how would you feel being in this uh, this sort of pressure cooker environment? You know, is that is that what it's going to feel like being there, or do you think that you, uh, from your experience of hackathons, it'll be a little bit more collegiate and relaxed, and people getting distracted with pizza and things? Um, a nice balance, we'd like to think. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's a competitive element, but we want p- people to produce their best work and feel comfortable, um, which is very much like the you know the environment that we that we both work in. So, um, yeah, a, a compromise, I think, a balance somewhere between the two. I would S- say. So, hopefully, not like um, Facebook, a la Aaron Sorkin. You know. <laughs> Uh-huh. Did you see the movie? I've seen the movie. Yes. Yeah, I've seen the yeah. great film, yeah. 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 So so no drinking and hacking is in, in your event? Um it's hard to comment on the um <laughs> on the drinking side of things. There'll certainly be an abundance of, of pizza. Um 
Trinky, we'll have to get back to you about that one. It's a grey area. Excellent, Let, excellent. The say. policies might need to be sorted out. <laughs> yeah. We're still yeah, planning our catering plans with Inspire 9, so we haven't finalised everything. But all we know is, yes, there is crust pizza and some healthy sushis and stuff like that. So Vegetarian yeah. options yes, as well. Yes, and gluten-free. <laughs> gluten-free. There you go. So no matter your dietary requirements, if you're a front-end or a back-end developer and you're a recent graduate or uh, in the, your final year of ICT studies, this might be... A an employment opportunity or even just a networking opportunity that could be a good experience for you. The prizes up for grabs are certainly appealing. Um, so if you want to find out more about that, please check out uh, hacktoyourfuture.today and we'll tweet out the links and do some Facebooking for you a bit later. Ram and Chris, thanks so much for coming in and telling us about the event. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're listening to Bite Into It with Vanessa, Dan and Mike. And uh, right now we are going to flash back to the past. A couple of weeks ago, ResBaz, the Research Bazaar event, was on at Melbourne University. And um, I spoke to Simon Hetrick, the director of the Software Sustainability Institute, which operates in Edinburgh, Manchester, Oxford, and it's based at Southampton Uni. Simon was in Australia to participate in the Research Bazaar, and um, his institute contributes resources and expertise to cultivate world-class research with software. He tells us a bit about what that means. Can you tell our audience a little about what the Software Sustainability Institute is? Well, we're a really new kind of organisation worldwide, not just in the UK. And we were set up to ensure that researchers are using the best software that they can possibly use. And that's that's really important because software is huge in academia. Um, we recently ran a nationwide survey and we found that uh, 7 out of 10 researchers would, would not be able to do their work without access to software. And I can translate that into even better numbers, actually. That's, that's 170,000 people or, or just over a billion pounds per year and uh, you know when there's that kind of investment and that number of people involved in, in research software then you need an organization who's going to ensure that that software is you know reliable and reproducible and reusable and that's our purpose do you have a scientific research background yourself yes no um I was originally an experimental physicist, a laser physicist, in fact. Uh, I did my PhD at the University of Southampton in that area. But I have to admit that I, I got out quite soon. And rather than going for a postdoc, I went instead into patent law for a few years. But unfortunately, that wasn't as fulfilling as to somebody who wants to get their hands dirty with research. So that drew me back to academia and eventually to the Software Sustainability Institute. We split the institute up into a number of different teams, and they all work with the research community in different ways. So we have developers who go out and work directly with researchers. We have a community team that go out and run workshops, and we have a really successful fellowship. And we have a training team who go out and conduct training. Um, you know, over, over the last two years, we've trained over a 1,000 researchers in the UK alone. And whilst they're out there, we found that we kept getting intelligence coming back to us about the kind of software that researchers are using, and more importantly, the kind of problems that they're facing with their software. And we realised that we were in this perfect situation to do something about these issues because we had the right contacts, um, not just into the community, but also with uh, policymakers in, in their research councils and in government. So we take those, those in ideas that we gain from the community and we try and do something about it. Simon, how does the organisation get funded? We're in a strange situation. We're a research-funded organisation, so we're funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, which is the biggest research council in the UK. 
but we don't write papers, we don't do the sort of the kind of research that they usually fund. So we're in this strange situation of providing services to to researchers, but being funded as a research project. We're in a very interesting mo- time at the moment because we're about to change over, and rather than just being funded by one research council, which is basically being funded by a particular discipline in the sciences. We're going to be funded by a number of different research councils. So it's because over the last five years we've really been pushing this agenda that everybody uses software regardless of their background, that we've managed to get some of the research councils to agree with us and um, and hopefully to fund us. What was your institute's relationship with Research Bazaar before you came out? Did you share ideas about the event? David Flanders was at JISC in the UK for a number of years, and we actually copied a number of his ideas for workshops that we run in the UK. So really, um, the main reason I came across here was that we're really interested in this concept, so we want to take it back to the UK. We run workshops for sort of later stage researchers and you know for postdocs and professors and people like that. And we want to have one of these student-run conferences in the UK UK and um, the research bazaar just was a fantastic event and I'm going back to the UK with with the idea in mind that we're going to start running it in the UK too. You've conducted the research software survey, can you tell us what you were trying to discover with this survey? Yeah we weren't so much trying to discover something as just confirm our suspicions. So we go to um, policymakers and tell them that they need to start thinking about the software that's being used in research but you know, we are believers in evidence-based policy. We've got to be able to back that up with numbers. So we realised we'd have to do something to try and work out how many researchers were relying on software. And we thought of all these various mad different ways of doing it. And then eventually we went for we went for the old school approach. And we ran a survey and asked researchers opinions of the software they're using, and also got information back on the amount of people who are developing software and whether they have training, which is really interesting. And then we could do some interesting stuff also because. We took some demographic information, so we took gender, for example. One of the fascinating things that came out was that, um, because there's a big thing in in software about the gender imbalance, there are far, far more men than there are women in, in computing in general. But we found that researchers, they're equally as likely to use software if they're male or female. But when it comes to developing software, men are twice as likely to develop software than female researchers. So did the survey give you much information that would let you map the different sorts of software that different uh, disciplines within science were attracted to and you know, did you see any patterns emerge there? Yes, it did, but we haven't actually made that match together yet. One thing we found was that there, there was over 600 packages, I think, were, were actually discussed in the survey. So it will take quite a while for us to match those back to each of the disciplines and give any kind of coherent picture about what each discipline is using, what type of software they're using. But we did take the information, and it's one of the things on the list that we're going to do soon. Do you act as an information hub between different types of research scientists, uh, making recommendations on things that have worked for other people? We've always had a very collaborative approach to everything that we do. So for one thing, with all our policy work, um, we have a blog where we we talk about the research that we're thinking about doing, and then as we're making progress and as we're having various ideas, then we talk about it some more. So one one interesting thing that came up with the survey was um, we did that by just randomly emailing academics in the UK. And there was this whole issue about that's going to look a lot like spam, you know, so should we even do that? So we went to the community and wrote up a blog post before we even thought about doing it to see that the the methods that we were going to employ so we try to be as open as possible and 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 that's because we want to collaborate with anyone who's also in this field 
What's a challenge which you think Australian researchers could relate to, which you're currently trying to tackle? Something that they will definitely can relate to will be something in the UK that we're calling research software engineers. So, because uh, we found that this is happening in the US, in Canada, in Europe, and in and in the UK. So, I'm doubtless that it's also happening in Australia. Um, basically, these are the people who write code but not papers. So. Um, Research relies on software, so they need good software developers in these research teams. So um, what you'd think you would do is just hire in a software developer because they've got the right expertise. But that's very difficult in academia because it's it's working on a system where academics work on their own and they write papers, you know, as they did maybe 100 years ago. Um, and so what's happened is that to, to be able to hire software developers, academics have started calling people postdocs, which is completely wrong, um, and then hiring in a software developer in that position, and which seems like a fine workaround until you realise that these people are being judged by the same metrics as other academics. And if you write code and not papers, that means you get stuck in a very low position and that it's incredibly difficult to progress your career without moving out of academia. And, and I've been criticised for that before in the past, but I think it's very important that some people move out of academia. You know, it, Academia ultimately is there to ensure we have a trained workforce, but we should be able to keep some of these people because they are fundamental to a vast amount of the, soft, of the research that occurs currently because so much of it relies on good software. Thank you very much, Simon. To find out more about the Software Sustainability Institute, where should they go? Well, our website would be the place. We managed to bag on a really good URL. It's uh, software.ac.uk. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're with Bite Into It, and we're discussing computers and new technology, as we always love to do. Tonight, we're with Mike, Dan, and Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. Mike, it's been a while since we've spoken games with you. Has it? Not with me. Yes, it has. Yes. Yeah, but I'd love to to do so. All right, let's talk about a few things. Uh, Hot off the digital press uh, from the Interactive Games and Entertainment Association of Australia, although they don't add that extra (laughs) for some reason, it's IGEA. Uh, I've got the results of, I guess, last year's moves in the financial area as far as games are concerned locally um, the and it's all done with infographic in front of me so there's a bit of a caveat here I'm not sure how inclusive this is whether it includes the candy crushes and so forth on digital or mobile uh, uh, oh no it does um, anyway in total the industry was up 20% to a 2.462 billion industry in, in Australia which uh, if I'm not mistaken easily outstrips the film industry by mm. a, a, a significant margin uh, Traditional sales are up 7%, which actually surprised me, to um, sort of just over uh, $1.2 billion. Uh, digital sales are up 39% to uh, almost, uh, actually more than the traditional sales, $1.24 uh, uh, Hardware's uh, up 32%. Uh, um, mobile, you won't be surprised to hear, is up 56% to $703 million, which So is... mobile sales are considered something different to digital sales? Yeah, this is. Uh, this looks like it's actually, for some reason, there. So maybe digital's things like Steam and uh, you know humble ab- bundles and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah oh, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, let's let's go to the 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 traditional retail software mm-hmm. at that level is down um, six down five percent to only six hundred and fifteen million. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, uh, the digital download side of things, which I think is what you're referring to, is up twenty five percent. It's yeah. still 
lagging behind the traditional sales, though, which, uh, you know, I think we're almost reaching that equilibrium. But uh, if, if traditional is 615, digital is up 25% to $455 million in uh, sales. Uh, and just to round a couple of things off, uh, accessories are up 5%, so that's sort of your, your extra controllers and things like that that people need nowadays when they buy new consoles. Uh, subscriptions is up almost 70%, so that's things like WoW and PlayStation Plus and, I guess, Xbox Live. And, and, and so forth, uh, yeah, up to $90 million. And uh, game cards, you know, you see them in the supermarkets and things yeah. like that. People buy them gift cards up 16% to $7 million, which so is... So people are actually using those. Apparently, yeah. So, so this, this is all... Minecraft. Yes, uh, right. The, the, these, these are all based on sales in Australia, is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's and all Australian. Is there any indication as to how much of that is staying in Australia? <laughs> that's, a, that's a fine question. Well... Uh, as opposed as to a, going as to the companies and back well, to the... Well, no, I'm, I'm, I was thinking more in terms of an indication of the health of the Australian games industry as in terms of production. Uh, the creators of the game creators industry. of game, yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's an interesting question because uh, they're all over in GDC at the moment, the mm. Game Developers Conference. Uh, I did want to actually touch on uh, just um, as an aside. There's a local company called Surprise Attack, which are pretty much a PR PR company. But uh, the way they promote local and indie developed things, um, games in particular, is quite uh, impressive. I was just going to rattle off a couple, but yeah. uh, you see in particular um, people like Surprise Attack and and the other local indies at. Uh, and so forth, which mm. is a, a great showcase for uh, a chance for people that actually are um, wanting to play some of these indie games where, where, let's face it, all of the interesting ideas are nowadays, uh, can actually meet and greet the people that are creating these games. Uh, so we'll um, just rattle off uh, some of the ones that, uh, in particular, just focusing on Surprise Attack, for example, um, some of the cool games that they've got coming. They've got they've got one called Space Sluggers, which is uh, <laughs> essentially a, a space shoot-em-up, but it's kind of got that... that, that, uh, that sort of, um, I guess, tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, um, uh, cleverness about it. Uh, there's uh, the puzzle game called uh, Oscura Lost Light, uh, which you can get on Steam now, which is an interesting sort of platform game and very much like uh, the games you've seen in the past, such as Limbo and so forth. Oh, excellent. Which use that sort of silhouette-style um, approach for the protagonist, uh, but then also with the puzzle element of being able to flip gravity and so forth uh, to, to make it through, I guess, the platforms that are presented. So... I really enjoyed that. I've been uh, hooked on... Um, I've been doing a lot of late-night work, like 3am <laughs> in the morning, and, and on conference calls and things like that. And in the background, I've been playing a lot of um, A Druid's Duel, which uh, is essentially... Um, it's based on, uh, I guess, Celtic Druid um, uh, lore, as it were, uh, and and is a... a, a um, uh, not a real-time strategy, a, a, a what is a turn-based uh, strategy game where your druids, you can summon more druids, you earn mana by taking over lands, um, uh, you sa- the, the druids themselves have all special abilities and so forth. And again, it's a, it's, it's a quite a simple actual puzzle game, but boasts over 130 levels and uh, boss fights and things like that. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, and then finally, uh, I just wanted to touch on uh, one called... Oh, what was it called? It's called um, uh, Fort Meow. Uh, which is a physics-based game where you play a little girl building a fort up in the attic while cats launch themselves at you. (laughs) 
So it's sort of the opposite of something like Angry Birds. <laughs> you're, you're actually building the fort in this case. You're dodging the angry cats. Yeah. Yep. That's fantastic. And I think fort it really, meow. you know, that's very great observational uh, about uh, how cats behave when they see you intently focused on something and they know they can not <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking, yeah. Uh, it, it, indeed, on some of these 3am conference calls, uh, my cat will sleep on the keyboard and I guess that's where the name comes from. I'm feeling um, a super trooper moment coming on where I just want to say, all right, meow, that's enough, meow. <laughs> It's along those lines. Uh, At the other end of the spectrum, I've been playing a game uh, that's just come out for PlayStation 4 called um, The Order 1886. I did want to touch on it briefly. Uh, I guess um, the PlayStation 4, hey, Uh, when it was launched a bit over a year ago, uh, and then probably the months that followed with its competitor Xbox One, uh, everybody said, buy a PS4 because the feature set is fantastic. Some of the, um, the support that... Sony has given to the independent developers and so forth has been fantastic and in fact you'd probably almost say that it's still the, the, the console of choice depending on you know where your friends lie and what your needs are but as far as exclusive AAA games go they've gone gone through a few woes in the last uh, probably 6 to 12 months um, there's the, the, some of the debacles with games such as Drive Club and so forth and then along comes the order. A lot of people were waiting for the order 1886. It was uh, previewed very well at a lot of the, the big trade shows and so forth. And this would be the best-looking ever console game that is the worst game ever I've ever oh, come no. across. Oh, no. Um, uh, it, in a lot of ways. Uh, look, it, it, it's a relatively short experience. There's not a great deal of replay uh, value here. It's it's a set in, and it all sounds fantastic, right? It's beautiful to look at. It's set in an alternative uh, London uh, setting uh, where you play the role of um, one of the Order, hello, which essentially is the Knights of the Round Table moving through time. They've kind of got a sense... They've got a sense of immortality about them, having discovered the Grail, as they did would have, I guess. You know, they went on those quests mm-hmm. all the time, according to Monty Python, which is my only point of reference. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and and out of the finding the Grail, they've got a certain level of uh, mortality. Immortality, I should say. They chose wisely, as it were. Uh, and... They're battling kind of this super supernatural foe, which is essentially, um, without giving too much away, because I think it's all given away in a lot of the trailers <laughs> anyway, a werewolf-style uh, brotherhood. Uh, and they call themselves half-breeds. Um, so essentially this is a shooter, uh, uh, and the setting is great. It's a, it's a steampunk-esque sort of uh, era with lots of gadgets and so forth. In fact, Nik- Nikola Tesla plays your Q if I can yeah. mix my metaphors there, who comes up with all the uh, the gadgets that you'll use throughout the game. It's just a bit run-of-the-mill. Uh, the shooting's not great. The um, the shooting actually devolves into a lot of, uh, I guess, early Call of Duty shoot, um, shooting gallery-style uh, moments. Um, the AI of the, the people you're up against, which is often the half-breeds, but then you also murder a lot of uh, rebels because there's a, the rebellion going on, the anti-sort of monarch re- rebellion that's going <laughs> on, uh, which of course, you know, as a knight of the realm, you're, uh, um, uh, you must quash. Uh, the AI of those opponents is great until they get into cover, and then they just sit there and they blind fire out from the side, and in fact, if you shoot them in the gun, you can kill them. 
which is novel, uh, which is nice. It's handy to have, mm-hmm. handy to know these things. I've probably given away too much now. People will be able to blast through the game. Um, <laughs> it uh, it has some frustrating quick time events in it. If you're not familiar with quick time events, that's where they kind of uh, that you've got to go through a series of button presses to to succeed, and you've got to hit those quite fast. It does keep you on edge though, because they will spring that on you during a traditional cutscene. So you'll be sort of sitting there watching a cutscene, beautifully rendered, and the story is quite good. Uh, and then suddenly press X, uh, but you didn't press X fast enough, so you die. Uh, and then so you have to replay the cutscene. Then you press X because it's always the same same uh, set of um, um, button presses, and away you go. And look, ultimately, uh, the story is satisfying. The gameplay is not, uh, and it looks wonderful. So if that ticks enough boxes for you to go out and buy it, then sure, go ahead. But if for me, this is a bargain bin uh, title down the track. Uh, and that's pretty much all I wanted to say, really. Uh, I did want to mention Netflix. Have we mentioned Netflix? So, no, not no. tonight. We haven't. We've got. Uh, so I worked out. I've got fourteen devices at home. Actually, eighteen devices at home that can play Netflix <laughs> when, it, when, it, when it appears uh, 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 on our shores officially. I remember uh, speaking about it a couple, of, a couple of months back, finding out that Netflix is currently the second most uh, um, uh, service used for streaming content in Australia, even though it's not officially here yet. Uh, but it does launch on the 24th of March, officially. You can download the app now for the Xbox One uh, and probably stare at it for 20 days. But um, uh, I think it's worth mentioning on the show that they finally announced a release date. Mm, that's right. Mm. Although I must say I'm a little less excited knowing that uh, Foxtel has already stitched up deals for a lot of content yeah. for yeah. you know your HBO really uh, in demand shows. Mm, well, yeah, I mean the the big name being Orange is the New Black. Uh, there's been no uh, indication as to whether that's going that the, the new season of that will be released in June, and there's no indication as to whether that's going to be available on the Australian Netflix or whether Foxtel has nabbed up the uh, the rights to that one. So I guess watch that space. Well, I guess though, if you're if uh, if you're sort of person that loves their movies doesn't care so much probably like i do about new releases so much but you're just kind of a bit jack of paying you know seven dollars for the official download of i don't know Mm. ace ventura Mm. pet detective Mm, but Uh, still want to feel like you're doing the right thing then maybe the subscription model might suit in in that regard but you're right the new tv shows the the game of thrones Mm. and things like that you're Mm. going to be a bit stuff. Have yeah. any of you guys tried out Stan? No. No. Oh, that streaming service um, is starting to get a bit of traction mm. through the people I know and, and a lot on the tech forums I've been mm. on, you know, people have been talking about, oh, you know, how do I how do I get it off my devices? You know, it goes on my on my phone and my iPad and uh, other devices really easily, but how do I then get it to stream it to my TV? So there's a lot of troubleshooting going on and oh, I think yeah. mm-hmm. once these kind of tech forward army, you know, group <laughs> of people get in there, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if it spreads, if they're happy with it because they're, I think, the the people who make people's minds up and, and tell people, yep, this is easy enough to do. I'll get my family and friends to do it as well. Mm. Um, but hearing good things about the content, people are trying it out, seems uh, reasonable for the price. I what, don't know what that price the, is. Do you know what the differentiator is between something like Stan? No. I, I can't no. remember. Well, I'm, I've not seen the on, ads. I'm not on any of them. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, so I'm not sure. I don't watch enough TV. I'm not, I'm, I have in front of enough screens as it is. <laughs> yeah, um, I have used Netflix in the past and I've found it to be reasonably... Um, val- good value, mm. I, I would say, but I mean, depending on what the Australian prices are going to be like, mm. which I have, have um, I don't know if they've been announced yet, but comp- comparably, I, don't, I, f- I find I find that Netflix is useful if you're not looking for something in particular. It's great for browsing and just trying trying to find something, mm. but um, but if you're looking for something in particular, a lot of the time, uh, you're left wanting. 
Can I just mention also, sorry, just backing, backtracking a little bit to games, um, that uh, the, the big announcements this week was that the Unreal Engine 4, uh, which is a, a great tool for developing games, um, has actually been announced by Epic to be a free uh, download now. Impressive. Um, yeah, which they is They want great. to compete with Unity a bit. Well, Unity have just uh, just announced also that their Unity 5 is going to launch free as well. Now, I haven't actually invested any time in what the Unity offering is. The the the, um, the Unreal 4 engine, which is a, you know, a, a pretty impressive looking engine if you can get it running, uh, you and your... I guess it has to be a garage full of mates now, <laughs> wouldn't it, to, to get it up and running. But um, uh, it's free, and then if you have a, in the, create a product... They'll take five percent of everything over three thousand dollars from there on. So it's it's not a bad move. Mm, you're on Triple R, listening to bite into it, and uh, we've been gas bagging for a bit. So I thought I'd remind you where you are right now, guys. Did you follow any of the uh, the news from our politicians this week and their their tragic intersections with technology? Uh, there were some <laughs> eye messagings going on. <laughs> yes, um, I, I found this enormously amusing. Um, for those who are, aren't aware, the um, a, a number of uh, government politicians, some possibly some of the opposition were as well, but I think more, more was made of the government politicians considering the uh, the uh, data retention laws that have gone through in the last couple of days, um, were found to be using their uh, publicly available parliamentary email addresses uh, for iMessage on uh, on their on their various iOS devices. So um, for a brief period, there uh, people realised it was possible to send a text directly to George Brandis, for example. Um, I don't know. Do you know of any other uh, politicians or any other in- instances of this happening? I think Greg Hunt was also on the receiving end of this one, but uh, someone someone decided to send the Attorney General the first entire chapter of. Uh, uh, George Orwell's 1984. Perfect. Uh, very wow. prescient. Good That's work. great. Yep. That's excellent. But on the other side of the coin, we have a story this week about Wicker, W-I-C-K-R. It's a, it's a messaging app, and uh, it's a little bit like Snapchat for, well, politicians, apparently. Mm. <laughs> and some of our politicians, like Malcolm Turnbull, have been using this, and uh, apparently they've been shooting around messages and then putting a little timestamp on it and saying, this is, you know, this message will self-destruct within this amount of time. It was launched in uh, 2012 by security experts. Of course you'd say you're a security expert if you're going to launch this app, but that's um, that's what they're using. And apparently people like Scott Morrison and uh, Malcolm Turnbull, they're the only names I could find, have been using this app to shoot around messages and hopefully not get swept up in any sort of news of the world type of phone hacking scandal, I guess. <laughs> and, and, and like swearing by them too. I, I found it interesting that um, Malcolm Turnbull was saying, oh, don't use SMS. It's extraordinarily un- insecure and uh, you know, easily hacked, which, you know, is, is, is well, well Particularly known. If, your, if your SIM card's been um, um, had exploited. Yeah, well, while at the same time, you know, saying we're going to be uh, harvesting as much metadata from I was going to say, does it, does it go into the metadata uh, archive? <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope. Look, I have no idea. Um, but what's interesting about this particular company is that um, after Snapchat had a security vulnerability expo- that exposed uh, personal details of 4.6 million users um, in January last year, Wicker experienced 50% growth. So people were definitely looking for something else. Um, They've also offered uh, a $100,000 US dollar bounty for people who can find vulnerabilities that would significantly impact its users. And uh, Google have shown that that's a really good model Mm. to try and... Yeah, test your security and put it out there. So they've, they've aimed quite high and um, they've got some well-deserved publicity this week. Uh, 
Iggy Azalea is apparently a fan after some pizza store shared her phone details a little while ago and uh, apparently she's up to security mm. in response to that. So, yeah, interesting stuff. I think it's, uh, it's time to maybe reflect on a couple of the opportunities and events for the week. So what really, really caught my eye is um, that there's a character named Rex Hazard who I'd never heard of, but he's visiting Melbourne and he's a pretty interesting fellow. He's so interesting that lots of people have gotten their hooks out and said, oh my gosh, we have to have this guy at our events. So he was, um, he popped up all over the place. But why he's famous is he's set up and been involved with lots of groups of creative builders and hacker spaces and co-working spaces and maker spaces. And he's done this sort of work across the globe. So he's been in the States, in Africa, Israel, the Philippines, and now in Australia. He's part of an organisation that's utilising open source forms of creative spaces and um, trying to take those into disaster zones in particular to give victims the opportunity to rebuild their lives as they see fit, this is why he'd say, instead of, um, the, instead of in a uh, paternalistic type of way. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he's got a lot of passion for his work, it seems. He self-funds his travel and much of his development work. And he wants to help continue to connect Melbourne makers with the world to form a large, more connected community and introduce people to these ideas of um, maker spaces for disaster relief. Cool. So it's kind of like Techies Without Borders. Well, he sounds like, yeah, a bit of a, you know, like a, a great hacker pirate type of guy <laughs> going around, you know, trying to give help where it's needed. Um, it can't be his real name. <laughs> <laughs> no, it can't, but it's pretty fabulous. Um, so Rex Hazard will be at the Footscray Maker Lab um, on Thursday, the 5th of March at 6.30. And uh, we've spoken about the Footscray Maker Lab before. Have either of you guys been down there? No, I've not. Tell us. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a really great space because not only do they have people exploring, you know, digital type technologies and playing with 3D printers these days and soldering things and upgrading stuff, they've also got things that you might uh, expect in a, a more old-fashioned toolshed type co-sharing uh, space where people used to go and kind of share tools and make things. So they've got people with different types of skills like woodworking skills, metalworking skills, and you can just imagine how together that gives you a great capability mm. to um, to solve problems and create good housings for your techie equipment and, um, you know, tech upgrades for your other sort of mechanical equipment. Mm. Yeah put controls over things and that sort of stuff. So they're one of the groups who hooked in with him. The other group that I noticed was um, Media Lab Melbourne. So we've spoken to some of the organisers of Media Lab Melbourne before. You've got people involved like Kit Webster, you know, a lighting and sound artist, and he's pretty amazing, and Kiara Kickdrum, who's um, also working within the sound space and experimental things, uh, Richie Singler, also, you know, an experimental sound kind of guy. Um, they, last year, were doing monthly labs where people could come along and upskill each other and share their creative projects, and they'd have speakers at each of these. This year, they've decided to um, move to a bi-monthly basis so that they can cover more ground with their events and not just do talks, but also do more participatory um, type events. Uh, and they're going to be based at the Docklands Library for these events. So... Their next, like their first one for the year is coming up on Sunday the 8th of March at 2pm at the Docklands Library. It's going to feature um, M. Orbach and um, they'll be discussing organic growth systems for art creation and things that they do with crystals and how that feeds back into their art process and everything. It's a little bit more scientific, okay. that one. Mm. But Rex Hazard's also going to be there and um, I, th- I imagine that that will open up scope for him to talk 
in a little bit more of a creative way about uh, some of the solutions he puts in place around the world. And uh, what a great opportunity to, to um, you know, talk to some guy who's been at the coalface of mm. some, some disasters and things. Cool. Yeah. Sounds cool. Hey, uh, can, can I maybe just finish off uh, a little uh, divergent uh, yeah, to a yeah. certain extent? But uh, uh, one of my other day jobs is um, writing for motoring.com.au and uh, I've been uh, dabbling in uh, some of the infotainment systems that are available out at the moment. Um, and I just it struck me, um, I've been driving a Holden and I've been driving a Mercedes, right? <laughs> and uh, a high-end Mercedes and, okay, a fairly high-end Holden, right? But Because and, and, they're trying to show off their, their systems. The Holden system that's out there at the moment, the MyLink system, is fantastic. I'm, I'm taken aback compared to perhaps other cars, which I've already mentioned, <laughs> um, and, and what they offer, uh, the, the, the MyLink system is, is uh, in, the, in the VF Commodore, is, is, is if, you know, if this floats your boat, if this was the thing that was going to put you over, I don't want to tell people what cars to buy or anything, but the fact that uh, the, the car that I drove recently um, has uh, kind of everything that you need. So it's got the Bluetooth uh, connectivity with your smartphone. It will read out your texts for you and actually provide you with uh, um, options for automatic replies without your fingers taking uh, removing from the steering wheel. Uh, voice recognition is fantastic. It's obviously tuned to the Australian um, uh, vocal talents. Uh, <laughs> that's so, impressive. I mean, yeah. that's mm. difficult. Struth, take me to the petrol station, mate. Yes. And it'll get you there. Um, the I guess the, uh, the, the sat-nav display that they have is a little cluttered and uh, could be designed a bit better um, and but finally uh, just simple things like in today's cars in the in the modern particularly high-end cars a lot of them coming out with heads-up displays so uh, so the reflection on the uh, on the windscreen a la fighter pilots from <laughs> firefox days <laughs> and so forth uh, the the hud in uh in the high-end commodores um well, uh, I, I, i'm not ashamed to say it. in this case it was an ssv ute uh but that's that's cool uh is fantastic Fantastic. You can. Um, it's got. It's. It's simple in that you can adjust the height. So if you're uh, a smaller statue stature, then you can uh, adjust it uh, according to your eye level. Uh, but also, it's configurable into uh, several different displays, most of which include your speed. My, my, the, what made me happy and what I wanted to mention was the fact that. Um, one display, which I thought was the best one, showed my current speed, uh, the direction I was travelling in, and the current speed limit where I was. So you can compare sort of like how much you're going under the speed limit. Uh, or if you press a couple of buttons, you can move it to be showing your current speed and the G-force of your acceleration, if you wish. <laughs> I think it's probably more stereotypical of the kind of people that are driving these high-powered utes, but uh, I thought it was hilarious. It's vital information, though. You need to know So this I've is. never actually seen one of these heads-up displays in person right. can you control the brightness and that sort of thing of that yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. in particular again in the, in the holden uh, option yes you can adjust it uh, quite quite and is a that lot. something you have to do a lot as you get into dusk or you know night conditions or anything or does it tend to be quite you know, you can leave it, it at the same setting all the time. I, I leave it at the same setting because it kind of sits around that road level, so uh -huh. it's not not in your it's not in your actual field of view. It, yeah. it sits at the road level. Then essentially, the background is always sort of asphalt, or if you drive like I am, very close up behind another car, mm. <laughs> it's a, mm. hopefully a dark car. So it's not obtrusive. Um, the only thing that really gets you a bit is Polaroid sunglasses may yeah. make no. it disappear, but yeah, it's right. Lost, really. Um, so did you have um, parking sensors on this Ute as well? I did. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, Are you a fan of those? Uh, it depends how they're implemented. Um, you can switch them off. You can switch them on. Mm. Uh, I in the Utah was kind of helpful because your rear vision is 
is somewhat obscured depending on on, on how you uh, go. I know if, um, in particular the driveway that I've got at home, I needed to get in fairly narrow space, so backing in mm. was quite helpful. Um, but generally speaking, yes. So used to what it about when you when you talk to the computer and use voice commands and things? Mm. Does it did it come naturally or did it feel really weird? They've made a lot of great improvements there, and yeah. it is a much more natural experience than what it has been, say, even two or three years ago. With some mm. of the, the systems were out then, but uh, they've done a lot of work, and it, it, it's the, it's a good deal. Well, I was in a Mercedes recently, and it was very much like computer, you know, yes. do mm. this, do that, and then once you go down the wrong branch, it was quite difficult to navigate back. And yeah, troubling UX there for uh, such a pricey vehicle, I <laughs> yeah. thought, but otherwise pretty slick. All right, we'd love to thank all of our guests this evening. Uh, Simon Hetrick, the Deputy Director of the Software Sustainability Institute. Sorry about that promotion there on uh, on our little package. We might have said director, but, uh, you know, we like to promote people here. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to Rem and Chris from Seamless with their hackathon. Uh, thanks for tuning in this evening, and uh, good night. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.